Today's reading is in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. May be seated. Well, good morning once again. It truly is a blessing to be able to be back preaching God's word here today. I'm so very thankful for everyone who stepped up these past weeks so that I could have time to focus on rest and uh, recovering from my shoulder surgery. I have been very blessed by this congregation uh, in, in many ways. Well, this morning, after pondering, or after a wonderful four-part series where we were able to ponder and focus on the gospel brought to us by Brother Kent, we return to our study of the gospel according to Matthew, and within Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we arrive at Christ's teaching on divorce and adultery, as was read for us just earlier. Of course, I would love to be able to take and walk us through where we're at in Matthew, how the teaching of Jesus had been building and how he'd been articulating these truths of the radical call of obedience of the kingdom of heaven versus what the people had been taught. Yet there is so much that I feel we need to cover on this issue. We just simply don't have time to walk through that. This is the first of two teachings that we find in the gospel of Matthew, where Jesus addresses the issue of, of divorce and both arguments are very similar, even though in Matthew 19, he does expand a little. We'll look at that today. Well, I don't think it's a surprise to any of you to hear that this is a very difficult and sensitive issue to preach on. This is one of those passages that if we weren't absolutely committed to the verse-by-verse -verse expositional preaching of Scripture through books of the Bible, if we weren't committed to that, we likely wouldn't touch on this issue. Certainly, it's a temptation to the flesh not to cover an issue like this, where I know that if I'm faithful to God's word, it will carry a heavy burden on some. It will cause pain and sorrow. But I simply don't have the option to skip this issue, to avoid this text, because there might be some heartache that'll come with it. Nor should I want to. Well, this morning we are first going to spend some time establishing the positive establishment of marriage before we return to our passage. So let's look at what marriage was created for, designed for, before we get into Jesus talking about when marriages fail or when they crumble. After that, we will take a few moments or to look through some passages throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament dealing with the issue of divorce. And then we're going to look at what Jesus said about divorce. And following that, we'll spend a few minutes looking at some of the uh, aspects of our culture and the way our culture handles this issue, as well as provide a few qualifications in order to try to prevent misunderstandings and heartache that is unnecessary. 
with all that task ahead of us, I ask that you please join with me in prayer and then pray for me and pray for those around you as we continue this morning. Father, I confess that your word is good. Your law is wonderful. It is perfect. It is a joy to meditate upon. Your word is life. Your son has the words of life. There is nowhere else for us to turn. Even so, because of the curse in this world, because of sin in us and sin in those around us, there are times where the beautiful words hurt us. Not in a way to destroy because you are good and desire good things for your children, but in a way to cut away things of this world, ultimately to bring healing in your son. So Father, I pray that you would be merciful to us today to give me words that are clear, be able to speak boldly about things that your son was very clear about in the word get conscience of how these words will affect people that I'm speaking to here and people that might listen later. Father, give me a heart of compassion and a passion for your truth. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin with the positive establishment of marriage. At its foundation, marriage was designed by God to be the bonding of a man and his helper, especially designed for him. That is what we read in Genesis. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis 2, we'll look at verses 18 through 24, and we look at the creation of marriage. It's all the way to the front of your Bibles. Genesis 2 starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, what do we see in this account in Genesis? Well, contrary to the rest of creation, every time God created anything else, he looked at his creation and said it was good, or it was very good. God created perfectly Yet when God looked at Adam, he said that it was not good that the man should be alone. 
There was nobody, there was nothing on this earth suitable for Adam. There was no one who could help him fulfill the mandates and the purpose of his creation. By himself, Adam was lacking. Adam needed Eve to be able to fulfill his role as the man and the mandate given to him by God to take dominion over all of creation. Together, Adam and Eve would act as one, both created in the image of God, coming together in the one flesh union so that they could bear fruit and that would populate the earth. And all those additional image bearers of God, their children, would increasingly display the glory and the wonder of God as his image was spread across the land and they took dominion over the whole of the earth. That is the purpose in God's design in marriage. Marriage was the first and most critical building block of society. We had the marriage, and then the family, and the clan, the city, the state, the nation, the world. The health of each expanding layer of society was completely dependent upon the health of the layers below. It is no wonder that we see so much chaos and conflict in our nation and the world around us. Because as we as a culture have attacked and confused this most basic building block of society for so long. Well, if we have any doubt upon the far-reaching scope of this Genesis institution of marriage given to our first parents, we have only to look at what Jesus said about this in Matthew 19. And there he said, so there are no longer two, but one flesh. It's right out of Genesis. And Jesus went on from there and said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But we're going to look a little bit later, more closely at what Jesus said fully on divorce. But we should note up front that Christ looked to the creation narrative and took the one flesh imagery that had been given to Adam very seriously. This wasn't just, this isn't just some kind of romantic phrase. This isn't something that just is a nice thing to think about. Something maybe to, to put in a poem. It's not just poetic language. There is something very deep and powerful in the one flesh union of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Well, we also see in Scripture the marriage between relationship used to describe the relationship between God and his people. This is common in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let's just give one example of each. We'll turn first to Isaiah 54, 5. So we have Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah 54, verse 5. And we read there, for your maker is your husband. 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Well, this is God speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah in the midst of their failing, their faithlessness, and their wandering. And in the midst of that, God named himself as their creator. He named himself as their husband, and he named himself as their redeemer. The most holy God, creator of the universe, had chosen the nation of Israel to be a bride unto himself. And this bride that he had called to himself, remember that he had rescued out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, this bride had wandered from him and run from him, been faithless to him. When we think about it in these terms, that really puts the sin of idolatry into perspective, does it not? That sin of idolatry is spiritual adultery against God. It is faithlessness to that kind of marriage covenant. That's true both of the nation of Israel and is also true within our own hearts. Next, let's look to a passage you're probably more familiar with concerning this type of language. In Ephesians 5, we'll start in verse 29. Ephesians 5. There's 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Starting in verse 29. We read, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, after Paul had given wives and instruction, uh, wives and husbands instructions on how they ought to treat each other in relation to how Christ dealt with the church, Paul gives this explanation. When it comes down to it in simple terms, the husband is to be good to his wife. The husband is to serve and care for his wife because she is part of his body. It's the nature of this one flesh union. How could he discard? How could he be mean or belittle his wife? She is a part of him. No one despises his own flesh, but he cares for his own flesh. He cannot hurt her without hurting himself. And in the same way, Christ will cherish and nourish the church because we are collectively members of his body. So Paul ties the inseparable union of the husband and the wife to that of the union between Christ and the church. That is what marriage was designed to be. And that is why we must not take it or anything that threatens it lightly. Well, having established or at least introduced the nature and the purpose of marriage, we must turn now to see the breakdown of marriage. 
One thing we need to note up front is that divorce does not come into reality and common practice among God's people through revealed law. Divorce does not come from God. So if it didn't come from God, then where did it come from, especially among the people of Israel? Well, this isn't the only issue in the Old Testament where there are laws given to restrict or regulate something that was never prescribed by God in the first place. Just to give one example, we can see this sort of situation concerning polygamy. Nowhere in Scripture is the practice of polygamy commanded or encouraged. It just simply was. We have to live with sometimes the awkward tension that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, something that was routinely affirmed in the New Testament, especially by Christ, that was the design for God in marriage. Yet men of God in the Old Testament often had multiple wives, and God did not rebuke them for this practice. Not only that, but he even used the fruit of these marriages in order to build the family tree of our Lord. So with both divorce and polygamy, we find laws to limit the damage that would otherwise follow these, what I would argue, unauthorized practices. These practices that God's people had borrowed from the nations around them. These are things that the nation of Israel just was doing. And then God provided some protection, even in the midst of their sin, by regulating those pagan practices. Well, let's look at some of the laws concerning divorce in the Old Testament. If you turn with me first to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. That is the passage that Jesus is referencing in our passage today when he says, you have heard. So Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and he he who took her as his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for in that that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It's essentially the sum total of commandments giving to how to allow for divorce. It's not a whole lot to go off of. It's not a whole lot to build an entire doctrine off of. Of course, we see in this passage, not the commendation, not the creation of divorce, not the condoning of divorce, but rules to mitigate the damage of divorce. In Matthew 19, Jesus would actually say that these were allowances given by Moses due to the hardness of the people's hearts. Yet from the beginning, it was not so. Well, here in chapter 24, as well as earlier in chapter 22, some laws concerning divorce were given as a protection towards those who would be most harmed by divorce. 
We have to remember that in this time and in this culture, divorce was allowed in Israel only for the men. Women were powerless to get a divorce. They were powerless to stop a divorce. They were most often the victims in these situations. So in chapter 2, there were two times when divorce was absolutely forbidden under any circumstances. And both of these times were to protect innocent wives. The first was if a man accused his wife falsely of not being a virgin when they were married. There was actually a way that the father could display proof of her virginity at marriage. And if he falsely accused his wife, the man was forbidden from ever divorcing her. And he had to pay her father restitution for the damage on their family honor. The other case was that if a man forced himself onto an unbetrothed, unmarried girl, a young woman, if he did that, unless he was forbidden by the father, he was commanded then to marry her and he could never divorce her. So in that case, if a man brought that upon himself and forced himself on a girl, he must provide for her and care for her for the remainder of his and her life. These were protections for those who would be harmed by divorce, not laws given to condone or encourage. Well, in Deuteronomy 24 that we just read, the men were required to give official notice written down to their wives if they sent them away. That writ of divorce was proof that the woman had not been unfaithful. It was proof that she was then freed, independent to be able to go and get married again, to be able to find a husband who could then care for her and protect her. Otherwise, a man might continually change his mind to be able to send out his wife and then call her back to himself. This law brought some provision of protection and provision for the women, and it made men more responsible for their actions. Again, these regulations did not condone or establish divorce. They placed limitations upon it. Well, as we move forward in Scripture, we come to the one passage where it might indicate that divorce was either commanded or an appropriate action for men to take. And we don't have time to turn there this morning, but in Ezra 9, we read the account of what happened when the exiles returned back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra. There was a time when Ezra had been approached by a group of leaders And they were sorrowful. They were distressed because upon returning from exile, there was a number of the leaders of the people and a number of the priests who had joined themselves to the pagan nations by taking daughters of those pagans to be their wives. In doing so, it is said in that chapter that they had not separated themselves from the people of the land or from their abominations. If you want to have an idea of what kind of abominations a pagan wife can bring somebody into, sometime this week, just go look at the story of Solomon. Probably the most wise man in history, wise mere mortal man in history. Yet by the end of his life, he had shipwrecked his faith, shipwrecked his country and his kingdom because he followed after the ways and established and participated in the pagan worship of his foreign wives. Well, Ezra and the people knew the faithlessness of the people of these returned exiles. And Ezra was appalled 
He and the people cried out to God for direction that what should they do? The people knew what it meant to forsake the commandments of God. They had just returned from 70 years of exile. They knew what this kind of sin deserved. They knew how God had responded to this kind of sin in their parents' generations. Well, in the end, after spending time in, in, in anguish and weeping and in prayer, the people made a covenant with God to put away their foreign wives and the children born to them. Well, it is unclear whether this action came from a response from God and in a form of a command that we don't actually read in the text, or if this is just something that people came to a conclusion to after prayer. But what we do know is that they regarded this radical step as necessary in order to guard the purity of the people and the land. Either way, this was not an example of someone deciding they no longer wanted their spouse. It was an example of the extreme measures the faithful would go to in order to separate themselves from sin and temptation and idolatry. Just picture from five weeks ago when we preached on adultery and lust. How Jesus even said that if your eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out. If your hand causes you sin, to cut it off. And remember, we do not see these as examples that are suggesting we mutilate our bodies. Because if we sin within our hearts, cutting off a part of our body doesn't help. But it expresses and shows us the extreme... That's a fun thing to get stuck on a word. Extreme measures that we ought to go to in order to rid ourselves of things that will cause us to sin. We ought to be willing to be radical in order to stop ourselves from falling into sin. Well, if we move on from Scripture again, even though the practice of divorce was not directed from God, it was not established by God, it was not condoned by God. It was used as imagery in relation to Israel's exile and judgment. But first I would ask you to turn to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Remember Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah. So we read there, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce which I, with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Okay, so I asked us to turn there. So what exactly are we seeing in this passage well, God, through Isaiah, is making it perfectly clear to Israel that the separation Israel experienced from God in the exile was not due to God having just changed his mind and no longer wanting his people as his bride. God just didn't decide that they're no longer a joy to me. I do not want them anymore, so I will send them away or sell them as a slave. No, this separation, this writ of divorce was because Israel had separated from God 
because of her sin. Israel has been unfaithful. Israel had gone astray. She had broken the covenant. Next, look with me at Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10. It's the book right after Isaiah. Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10. There we read, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that all for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. Well, that imagery of, of God and the people, of husband and wife, that continued even after the dividing of the kingdom. And here it's spoken of as though two sisters were married to a husband. God spoke of sending away Israel, sending her, the northern kingdom away into exile because she had broken the covenant. And because she had broken the covenant by giving herself to others, by committing adultery against her husband... God had given her a writ of divorce. And no, this doesn't make God a polygamist. This talking of Israel and Judah as, as sisters, both in a way married to God. This doesn't make God a polygamist. It simply shows how the covenantal relationship between Israel and God became tortured and distorted because of the nation's failures and idolatry. Well, it's in this passage that we get our first connection between adultery and divorce. But why haven't we seen that connection anywhere before in Scripture? Well, it's simply because according to the Old Testament law, a married woman committing adultery was to be executed. And a husband committing adultery with another man's wife was to be executed. There was no need for laws concerning divorce that dealt with adultery because the offending party in that case was brought, the death of that offending party brought about the natural end of that marriage. So you don't need to get divorced if your spouse commits adultery and then is then executed because of it. In this passage in Jeremiah, God shows the king of Judah the judgments of a divine decree of divorce that Israel received on account of the nation's unfaithfulness. This was a warning, a warning for Judah to be able to see, this is what happened to your sister. This is what is going to happen to you. If she continued in her idolatry against him. In fact, even later in this passage, it is said that Judah was even more wicked than her sister Israel. Well, I recognize this, this language of God sending a, a certificate of divorce for his people. 
is very hard for us to hear. And for many of us, it might sound contrary to what we know of Scripture or what we think we know of Scripture. But God does clearly speak of the destruction and the captivity of Israel as his giving her a decree of divorce, of the breaking of that covenant relationship because Israel had been unfaithful time and time again. And the same fate fell upon Judah, in part in, in Judah's own exile for 70 years, and then in a more permanent way, in AD 70, when that nation was forever cut off as God came in final judgment upon that faithless nation. Now surely the remnant was secured. The remnant that was faithful and believed was saved. Yet that nation will never again stand as the bride of Christ or the bride of God. Spiritual Israel, made up of all believing Jews and Gentiles, is and forevermore will be the bride of Christ, the Son of God. Even as Judah failed to heed the warnings of Israel, they failed to heed the warnings when they saw before their eyes Israel facing the decree of divorce from God. They failed to respond and were destroyed. Let us not presume by our, uh, by our standing as part of the redeemed people or supposing ourselves to be part of the redeemed people and tempt the judgment of God by remaining in idolatry and disobedience. Only those who by faith have been united to Christ will stand. Only those who by faith have been united to Christ will remain in Christ. All others, even though they pretend before men and claim the name of our Lord, will be cast away. Just as those who presumed their place with God in Israel because of their ethnic heritage. Well, as we think of the ultimate spiritual judgment on the nation of Israel following the rejection of the Messiah, we've talked about this before, and this will be a, a common theme in Matthew, that they're looking forward to the judgment of Israel in A.D. 70. Just as we think about that, let us remember the message of the last prophet that had been sent to the people before John the Baptist. In Malachi 2, 10 through 16, we read that God had stopped hearing the prayers. He had stopped listening to the weeping of the people because of the faithlessness of the marriages of the people. So that God takes the system, systemic breakdown of marriage very seriously. Those are very hard words to read in Malachi as we see just echoes and shadows of things that we knew were going to come on in judgment because we know the story. We know what happened after that as God is, is done listening to these cold people. We're going to wait just a moment to look what Jesus said about divorce. So let's jump forward to Paul's discourse in 1 Corinthians 7, another important passage for us. We don't have time right now to read that entire chapter, so I'm going to give you some homework to read that chapter this week, to think about what we've talked about this morning when you read that chapter, and a bit of context that might help you when you read that chapter. Paul is writing 
I believe, before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, before the rapid expansion of the persecution of Christians within the Roman Empire. He knew the words of Jesus pertaining to the difficult days to come. He was aware that things were about to get really bad, and they were going to be really bad for those even more so who were married, who had a family. Times were going to hit very hard. He wanted to spare his readers some of the hardships that would accompany these very hard days that were coming. So as we read those, we shouldn't take all those as being indicative of a permanent desire to refrain from marriage, as though marriage is something that you should only enter into if you cannot control yourself. We need to understand the time and the era in which Paul was writing these words. Because there was a real advantage, a real reason in that narrow window, window of history for people to be single if they were not already bound. But what is most pertinent to our discussion today from that chapter is what Paul has to say about a believer who is married to an unbeliever. This instruction would have been especially useful to any new Christian who is either aware of the, what happened in the book of Ezra or to somebody who was aware about Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians on being unequally yoked. The question was, what should a person do if they come to faith in Christ, if they follow him in obedience, yet their spouse does not? That's obviously a very delicate situation. We can see why, especially when we consider the radical call to obedience that we have seen throughout the book of Matthew, especially within the Sermon on the Mount, that will no doubt, this kind of obedience will no doubt become a source of vast amount of conflict and a failure to communicate in a marriage. Not only would the new Christian spouse's priorities drastically change as they now center their life on Christ, so would their worldview and the way that they communicated change. Their unbelieving spouse would be confronted by this vast chasm that would grow day by day, most likely provoking a negative response because of the change, even if those changes in the new Christian were positive. So what did Paul tell believers in that condition to do? Should they, like the exiles who returned in Ezra's day, seek a divorce from their unbelieving spouse? He would say, absolutely not. It might be unlawful and unwise for a Christian to knowingly marry somebody who is not a Christian, but once that marriage is established, they have formed that one flesh union and they ought not to be separated. They are brought together in a way that is deep, meaningful, and powerful, a way that is a completing act in God's purpose of creation, and they must not then be separated. As far as it is up to the Christian, they should cling to their spouse as God designed. Of course, if, and only if, their unbelieving spouse refused to endure with them, in that case, they would be freed. They'd be freed to divorce them. Though I would add, I believe being faithful to the word, they would not be free to be the ones seeking a divorce. 
Not only must a Christian in that case not seek a divorce, but they should also see their marriage as difficult as it might become as an opportunity for the unbelieving spouse to see the gospel, the power of the gospel, the power of our God to save, to see that power in action in their home. As Paul reminds them, they did not know whether or not God might use them to bring their unbelieving spouse to faith. Though it is through a very difficult situation, And if there's love expressed for the unbelieving spouse as there ought to be in that marriage, what better way is that unbelieving spouse going to have to witness the power of the gospel, to see the change of the gospel, than to see it in their spouse's life, in their home? Of course, Paul does say that when a spouse was abandoned in this manner, when when the unbelieving spouse refused to remain with him, they were freed from that spouse. And though it is not explicit in this text, I believe that there is good reason to see that this freedom from that marriage for the abandoned spouse is tied to the expectation that the unbelieving spouse would marry again. It's just a typical pattern in talking about this cultural context. If somebody left one marriage, it was because they were going to go find another spouse. So in that case, there is someone who is abandoned. I think the expectation is in the text that the person who abandoned them is going to move on. In that case, when that partner moves on, they will have broken the one flesh union of the marriage covenant. And when that happens, they will have been ultimately committing adultery on their first spouse. And when that happens, the innocent party is free to remarry. Well, what about if the abandoning spouse never moves on? It's a more difficult situation to consider. Well, as difficult as it may be, I believe that in that case, if the unbelieving spouse just will not endure with the Christian believer and then moves on and remains single and chaste, I do believe Paul would say the believer is free to let their spouse leave. They're not under compulsion to have to follow them. Though they must realize that that one flesh union has not been broken until their former spouse moves on. They ought to remain single. They ought, to be the, not, they ought not to be the one who makes that breaking of the covenant. They ought not to be the one who shatters that one flesh union. Of course, if the abandoning spouse has committed adultery then this discussion moves into a whole different category, one that we will explore more fully in just a moment. I will admit that perhaps some of this that I've just said might go beyond what is clearly evident or clearly on the page of Scripture, and I may not be able to bind somebody else's conscience to that degree, yet I believe it to be the natural conclusion of the whole testimony of the Word of God. And as you follow along, I trust you will see why. Well, now after taking that quick survey of the subject of divorce through the rest of Scripture, let us turn to the words of Christ, specifically in our passage for today. Well, in some ways, we are in a similar position to that which Jesus was in in that first century. 
All around him, divorce had been trivialized. And sadly, even among the people of God. Just as we have seen his te- as in, in his teaching on hatred and then his teaching on lust, Jesus' teaching on divorce is likely to be seen by many as radical, as harsh, as unkind, and as rigid. Yet, beloved, we cannot let the prevailing mood of our society or even the prevailing mood that's largely within the church of this nation be our ultimate decider of what is right, to be our ultimate decider of what is fair, or to be our ultimate decider of what is kind. We must be faithful to what God has revealed. We must have faith that God is determined to bring about what is good for his children, that God is determined to bring about what is good, even when that takes them through trials, even though when that causes them temporary suffering, and even when that results in hard discipline and consequences in our life that we must face. We must believe that by faith and walk confident in his good providence. Well, in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees started from the wrong position when it came to the subject of divorce. It's a devastating effect. They didn't understand, they didn't appreciate that divorce was not in the intention and the plan of God. They made the assumption that since in the Old Testament, Moses had made an allowance for divorce, that it must be something that was good and allowable a normal function within the life of the people, at least in some situations. There was two main schools of thought that had developed by this time. Some followed a hardline perspective that said divorce was only allowed in the case of unchastity. And then there was, that was the minority position. The most popular position taught that divorce was allowable for just about any reason. If the, well, of course, The husband was allowed allowed to divorce his wife for just about any reason. Again, the wife had no rights. But for the man, he could divorce his wife if she so much as cooked him a meal that didn't please him. There was essentially no restrictions. Of course, that reflected the approach of the breaking of marriage that was practiced by the pagan nations around them including the extremely cavalier practices of the Romans. But how did Jesus respond to this practice? That's, that's what we're really wanting to know. How did Jesus understand what Moses had allowed? So if you turn with me back again to our passage from this morning, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. There we read, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, Jesus' words here are very direct. Divorce apart from a previous act of adultery, adultery causes adultery. Notice that even in this passage, Jesus does not advocate for divorce. 
He simply relates the natural conclusion, the inevitable conclusion, that unless the one flesh union has already been broken in a marriage by adultery, a divorce will result in that union being broken when one of the spouses gets married again and they form a new one flesh bond. With a round out understanding of what Jesus is saying, let's look at Matthew 19, 3 through 9, at the other passage where Jesus talks about divorce. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one, or no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Of course, that passage serves to reinforce the view that Jesus had on marriage and how that view on marriage goes back to creation. His idea, his, his perspective on what marriage is. And it shouldn't surprise us that Christ, through whom are all things, for whom are all things, would go back to the beginning, the foundations of why things were created in order to show the foundation of marriage be able to show what was the purpose of marriage. He's going to look back at how it was, how it was meant to be, how God had commanded. In the covenant of marriage, two become one. They are joined together by God. And what God has separated, let no man separate. What God has joined, let no man separate. There he affirms that Moses did not condone, did not establish the practice of divorce among the people. Again, he simply allowed it and regulated it because the people's hearts were so hardened against God's purpose and design for marriage. And he brought about some protections for those who would be hurt by it. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, was an allowance by Moses to limit the sins of the people, not an endorsement of divorce. Of course, remember that this one condition that Jesus includes in his discussion of divorce, in this passage and the one in Matthew 19, this one condition only comes into the conversation when the law of the land is no longer in submission to the Old Testament law of God. Remember, the Old Testament law of God had the penalty for adultery set at execution. If the Mosaic law was in effect, the covenant of marriage naturally ended in the case of adultery because one of the partners would be executed. So what is Jesus getting at when he includes the caveat of adultery in this discussion of divorce? 
A caveat that's not even included in all the other gospel accounts. I believe it is this. That just as death provides the natural end to the one flesh covenant of marriage, adultery provides an unnatural yet real severing of that same covenant. So death provides a natural end to marriage. Adultery provides an unnatural yet real severing of that same covenant. Well, if you turn me quick to 1 Corinthians 6.16. Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Actually, going to go back to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. Well, in that passage there, Paul tells us that just as in marriage, a sexual relationship outside of marriage forms a one flesh bond. Of course, the discussion we're having today is not whether or not that act alone constitutes marriage or make any claim that that act alone conveys the same rights and responsibilities as marriage. What is important here is that in adultery, in a a relationship outside of marriage, a new one flesh union is made in the breaking of the old. Well, if we bring that knowledge back to the words of Christ, I believe that adultery changes the conversation when it comes to divorce, because in adultery, the one flesh union of that marriage has been broken Any subsequent marriages do not bring about adultery in that case because that marriage covenant has already been broken. But then to divorce outside of the reason of adultery is to ensure that any future relationships will break the original marriage. Because even if men come up with a legal document that says, I am no longer joined to this woman that marriage is still seen by God as real and valid as long as that one flesh union remains unbroken. So in this way, we can see divorce in the aftermath of adultery as valid. Not that the divorce itself is what separates and severs that one flesh covenant of marriage, but because that adultery has already broken that covenant and that bond of marriage. So I believe here that the allowance for divorce isn't really the big picture in this text. What is of greatest importance is that adultery breaks that covenant of marriage. I want to shift gears here just a bit to the degrading of marriage within our society. Remember that even though the the pagan nations around Jesus at that time had very liberal, destructive views, free-thinking views on marriage and divorce, this nation that we live in was founded by men who were committed to the wisdom of God's law. 
And until fairly recently, this nation recognized the importance of marriage, protected the importance of marriage, both as the solemn covenant that it is and as the most basic fundamental building block of society. I believe that the greatest offense that this nation has made against the institution of marriage happened long before the Supreme Court invented the so-called right to reinvent the meaning of marriage and to extend its definition to include homosexual unions and whatever else they're torturing the language of the Constitution to allow for today. I'm talking about the devastation that was caused to the understanding of marriage in this culture by the rise of the no-fault divorce. The no-fault divorce made divorce much less expensive and much less time-consuming. It took away much of the sting and the complication of divorce. The combination of decriminalizing adultery and the rise of the no-fault divorce trivialized both the entering into marriage as well as the breaking of marriage. In large part, because of no-fault divorce, we as a nation have lost our understanding that there must be a massive failure by one or both of the spouses in a marriage for that marriage covenant to be broken and for that marriage to end. This is a, a union made by God. It is not easily broken. To get divorced in this country... You used to have to be able to prove in court that one of the spouses was guilty. You used to have to be able to prove in court that you could lay the blame at someone's feet. You had to prove that there was extreme cruelty, adultery, long-term abandonment, incurable insanity, or long-term imprisonments. That process was no doubt messy, That process was no doubt ugly. That process was no doubt painful. But as the breaking of the covenant of marriage ought to be. Getting rid of that requirement blurs the line of detecting if there is in fact an innocent party. In the church, it confuses who might be subject to church discipline because they are acting sinfully against the word of God. And it confuses who might be the innocent party, free to remarry, free to move on with their lives, free from stigma, because they were the victim of somebody else's sin and are not held accountable because of it. In seeking to protect people from the pain and the mess that no doubt follows with with an at-fault divorce and that kind of messy court appearances, it actually hurts the innocent party's ability to be recognized and exonerated. Such a careless view of divorce has turned marriage in the eyes of this culture into a mere legal contract that can be easily undone with limited consequences to either party. In fact, people regularly create legal documents before they're married to establish what they're going to do when they end their marriage. No-fault divorce began in this country when it was signed into law in California in 1969, and it soon spread across the country far and wide. It was signed by one of the conservatives' favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan. 
when he was yet governor of California. No doubt his motives were tied with saving people from the pain and the trauma that went with the way the divorce had been preceded before. And he later considered signing into that into law as one of the biggest mistakes of his political career. And his state and this nation have suffered in the wake of the no-fault divorce. So what is a Christian to do in this alien land in which we exist? Well, the reasons listed in Scripture where a spouse can be set free from the marriage covenant can only be said to include adultery and abandonment. Any further expansion of the list must either result from an expansion of one's understanding of what constitutes adultery or abandonment, or by rejecting the clear teaching of Scripture and believing that it's no longer a sufficient guide to deal with these complicated and tender areas. You will often hear that the abuse or use of pornography or radical incompatibility or simply marital abuse, that any of these are valid Christian reasons for divorce. But all I can tell you is what I read in the word of God. And any divorce that does not follow a marriage that is already broken by physical adultery causes adultery. The only reason that I see in Scripture gives for a believer to seek divorce is that the one flesh marriage covenant has already been broken. And in that case, they are just recognizing what has already taken place. There's only one way I see that Scripture describes how that one flesh union is symbolized in marriage and one way that it is broken. And yet even then, even when that has been broken, even when the greatest betrayal that we can imagine has been committed against a spouse, divorce is not commanded. And I believe that restoration and healing is possible. For the Christian, restoration and healing ought to be our expectation and it ought to be our goal. Beloved, I am aware that this is radical. To many, this will seem burdensome and this will seem harsh. I can only offer the peace of knowing that this is from God. This is from God's word and that God loves his children and that God is working to bring about the ultimate good of his children. The issue of divorce and remarriage often go hand in hand. Yet in a land in which one, only one side needs to desire divorce, it is easy for one to find themselves legally divorced without having offered any compliance in the matter. In that case, I would urge, as long as the abandoning party does not move on, I would urge patience and prayer that reconciliation might yet occur. For as long as there is a possibility that reconciliation is possible, pursue reconciliation, pursue healing, even if it seems very unlikely. I say that because I think that Jesus would say that, that marriage is still valid until such a time that it is broken by adultery. And even then, forgiveness 
and reconciliation can still happen. Some might argue that behaving as I have suggested would simply make it more likely that they're taken advantage of. And I'm sure that in many cases it will. I would ask you though, looking at the whole of what scriptures call the Christian to, the whole of the Christian life, would you say that we are called to be a people that ought to sin to keep someone from sinning against us? Or put it another way, should we preventively act against another person because we are afraid they're going to act against us if we don't? Does that sound like what scripture calls the Christian to in this life? Beloved, though it may seem logical from a worldly perspective, that is not what we are called to. Even when we are called to be shrewd, we are called to be innocent as doves. Time and again, we have been commanded and given examples to show us how that we prefer to be wronged in the pursuit of reconciliation and peace. We prefer to be wronged rather than to press our wishes and to, to get what we want and what we think we deserve from others. Even in historic Christian just war theory, war is only acceptable in a defensive posture, not in conquest. And we will see this kind of principle play out time and again as we push on through the Sermon on the Mount. Well, for the sake of time, I need to wrap up this sermon with just a few qualifications. Normally, I don't think it is wise to give qualifications to your sermon because as soon as you do that, you're typically pulling a punch and giving somebody an out. But I think it's appropriate here. I don't want to accidentally or out of miscommunication press someone into a position that is dangerous to them and not in line with what I believe the Bible would teach us. Just a few things here. First off, none of this minimizes the real hurt that many spouses feel in marriages where their husbands or wives routinely mistreat them. It is a sad, soul-crushing reality that the relationships that are designed to be the most safe, protective, and stabilizing have the greatest ability to make one feel insecure, vulnerable, and out of control. Marital distress and trouble within the home is real. It is a devastating reality for far too many around us. None of this is a call to simply just grin and bear it or just to sit back and accept misery for a lifetime as your lot. There is a vast chasm between that and between making the decision to seek and pursue divorce. Secondly, none of this should place any burden on a spouse to remain in the home with someone with whom they or their children are in real tangible threat of great harm. There are certainly times where it is wise to remove oneself, even if temporarily, from an environment in order to prevent the escalation of the situation or prevent harm to yourself or others. So a time of separation may be necessary. Things may look grave. Even so, even so, divorce is not something that the Christian ought to seek out. Remember the words of Christ that to divorce when adultery has not yet been committed leads to adultery. Finally, if you or someone you love is currently married, even if it follows a previous divorce, then God is for your marriage. 
He is for your marriage being or becoming a faithful picture of the gospel. There is no way to undo a, a past mistake by committing a bigger mistake and compound, compounding your sin now. So if, if you or someone you know is in that position, repent or urge them to repent of past sins and to move forward. You don't have to live in guilt forever because of sins that have been committed. There is mercy and grace and forgiveness in the cross. Your marriage can, no matter how it began, your marriage can and should reflect the faithfulness and the goodness of God and his good design for mankind. So even as I, I plead with people, I plead with you, I would plead with any who would hear not to pursue what God has told us not to pursue, I would also plead to be faithful now, to be committed now, to let your marriages now reflect the wonder of the gospel in a lifelong, one flesh union of husband and wife. Beloved, there is no one who is facing these kinds of questions that has an easy time processing between what the world tells them to do, what their hearts are crying out for them to do, and what God would tell them to do. I've spent many hours over the years dwelling on this issue because it's such a complicated, such a sensitive issue. I've had four weeks to prepare just thinking about this issue, thinking about how to speak this truth to this congregation. I know that this issue is affecting the congregation I love and have been called to care for. So none of this is simple and none of this is easy. The word of God may be clear on this issue and I believe that it is. I don't think it's an issue of clarity. Yet obedience is. Submission to this truth is hard, can be complicated, can be confusing, can be scary. It can be a painful process. So beloved, do not hear these words in fear or despise marriage because the breaking of it is so devastating. Instead, wonder at the glory of God's design in marriage, his design in creation in marriage, to, sue, to, to bring about his glory through his image bearers, to establish mankind in pairs, one man, one woman, two becoming one, as the driving force to cover this earth in his glory as they take dominion from one side to the other. Just as horror, the horror of sin reveals the holiness of God and the wonder of the gospel, let the wonder of the gospel and God's patient endurance with his all too often faithless people drive you to worship. Even this difficult subject ought to drive us to worship. So if you are struggling in this area today, hope while there is yet hope. Grieve when that hope is gone. And in all things, turn your face to the Father, our Father in heaven who cares for you and who brings beauty from ashes. Father, I thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your tender compassion. I thank you for your word, even when it is hard, perhaps especially when it is hard because it is there when we need the most instruction. 
most encouragement to act in holiness and righteousness. Let us see the beauty of your design. We give you all the glory and honor. Praisings in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn now as we do every week to the Lord's table. So in just a moment, I will pray and invite you to come up and and receive elements and to bring them back to your seat for us to take together. But this this table is open not not to those who are, are perfect, not to those who have achieved some superior level of Christianity, but it's to those who are walking in faith and dependence on Christ, who realize that his broken body and shed blood covers all of our sins when we trust in him. So if you are walking with Christ, if you are in good standing with him and within the church of which you are a part, I'd invite you to come forward to partake of the elements and and we will partake of them together in just a moment. We're to Matthew 26. As now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we take of the bread and of the cup because we are confessing our dependence on the sacrifice of your son. We are confessing and professing our our total dependence on his life, his righteousness, his sacrifice. Father, we cling to him and we are thankful that by your spirit, you will keep us in him. Our union as the bride of Christ intact by your grace, by your sovereign power. Father, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen. Then Jesus continues that I tell you, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So as I am wont to do, I will ask that you just remember as we solemnly think upon the sacrifice of Christ that brought about our salvation, that we look forward in joy to the feast that we will have with the Lamb when we are united with our husband in heaven.